Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. The day began like any other day. It was hot. You thought about uh, slipping down to the river to cool off. And uh, then an alarm sounded in town. What was spotted was a dust cloud in the distance. Uh, It was coming from uh, the southeast. And you knew that meant only one thing. You hustled with the rest of the town and uh, you made preparations. You ran to make sure that you had enough provisions and that your family would be okay. Uh, And then you readied yourself and you readied your town for the coming siege. Part of the preparations was to shore up the defenses along the west wall. The west wall was, uh, uh, was an exposed wall, and you knew that the Persians had a uh, penchant for tunneling under the walls. And uh, so you were bracing yourself. And it was decided by the leaders of the town that the best way to shore up the defenses on the western wall was to fill in uh, many of the buildings that were along that western wall and to uh, pack in dirt so that it would be more difficult and maybe even impossible for the Persian invaders to be able to tunnel underneath the wall and to, to come into the city. Well, as the days and months went on during the siege, food became very scarce. And it was discovered that the Persians had indeed tunneled in, but their tunneling was, was foiled as a, a Roman garrison. They made their way into the tunnel and they, they met them halfway and they fought off the Persian invaders. But then the Persians built a siege ramp and they brought it up against the western wall. And at the same time they were bringing up the, the siege ramp, they were also tunneling a new tunnel. And they knew that if they uh, attacked you on the siege ramp, that most of the, the city's defenses would be focused on the siege ramp and they could just break in under the ground and take the city. And that's what they did. You'll never forget the day that you and your family were uh, carted off to Siphon, the capital of the Persian Empire, and sold into slavery. It was difficult days. Your faith in Christ made it bearable. This is the story of Dura Europo in Syria on the Euphrates River. It was a city that would never be rebuilt. It was a Roman outpost. It was a military town. And they did indeed fill in many homes and buildings along that western wall. And two of the buildings that they filled in, one was a Jewish synagogue and the other a church. Uh, We have the remains of this church and uh, we can see these pictures of this church in Dora, Europa. It is the oldest known church building in the world. 
And this structure, it's a a modest structure. It was a house church. It had two large rooms and a baptistry. Um, One room was large enough to hold about 70 people to assemble. And the baptistry, it was adorned with frescoes. Uh, It was a fresco of the Lord is our shepherd and Jesus and Peter walking on the water. This church was most likely built in 240 A.D. in Syria. And it was encased in dirt in 256 when the siege by the Persians began. In fact, that siege is a notorious siege because it's the first known use of chemical warfare in human history. You see, the Persians, they actually uh, sent in a, a deadly chemical mixture, a gas through those tunnels. And 20 Roman guards were killed in the tunnel It's because of their bodies that we know the date of the siege because the coins found on their bodies were dated 256. There's a lot of old church buildings in the world. Some are like this in Dura, Europo, in Syria, a place that we do not typically think of as a Christian nation. A place where we think the Christian church has never been in Syria And they are long forgotten and they are monuments to generations past. And there are other ancient churches that still have congregations meeting them in them today. One is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, built by Constantine in 312 AD. And it is still used today by the Roman Catholic Church. It's been added on to and it's been improved upon. But a church still meets there and has been since 312 A.D. And I wanted to bring these things to mind because one of the things that I want us to wrestle with is uh, what is the nature of the church? What is the church? And I thought one of the ways we could wrestle with this is what happens if a church closes its doors? I want us to imagine, what if our church were to close its doors? What if our church was, was uh, besieged and our town was abandoned and uh, we were run off out of Ray, Colorado? It could happen. The Canadians might get all rowdy if we get more golds than they in the Olympics. Or the Spanish, the Mexicans. And what if... Our church were to close its doors. Would anybody notice? Would, would anybody take note? Would it change much about our church? And I think it's a good thought experiment. And as I thought about this, I thought the people that would most notice are, are you all. The ones who spend about an hour or so here on Sunday mornings. The ones who come for women's Bible study on Wednesday nights. The, the girls who come on Monday evenings for girls groups. The, uh, the quilters who come on Tuesdays. The, the women's Bible study that meets on Fridays. The kids who come for VBS. The folks who show up and participate in some way in the life of our church. And our neighbors would notice. They'd probably be thankful. Because they would have far more parking on Sundays and other days of the week. 
But would others notice? Would others in the town notice if we were to close our doors and no longer would the first Christian church of Ray exist and be here? And quite frankly, I'm not quite so certain they would. And that struggle, I struggle with that. I wrestle with that because in some ways, in our modern American way of understanding church, we have confused church with a building, a place that we meet at. You see that family, those families who worshipped at the church in Dura Europo when they buried it in dirt, hoping to fend off the Persians. The church there did not cease to exist. The building did. But the church lived on. I don't know where those folks ended up. But they ended up slaves someplace in Persia. Modern-day Iran. And to this day, there are believers in Iran who would trace their heritage to those Christian slaves. There are folks who would say, my family has been Christian for generations. In fact, there's even a possibility. There was one king of Iran who married a Christian woman. And it is rumored that Iran at one point in its ancient history was a briefly a Christian nation. <laughs> Can you imagine? All this obviously predates Islam. All of this predates modern day Shia Islam in Iran. But the church did not cease to exist when the building was destroyed. And oftentimes we equate church with a place, with a building. It's so strange because Jesus never had a building. Jesus never had a home. Jesus was an itinerant preacher wandering around the countryside of Israel, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Last week, we looked at this idea that the church is the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. The church is the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. The church is not First Christian Church at 534 Grant Street, Ray, Colorado. The church is not Cherry Hills Community Church at 3900 Grace Way in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. The church is none of these places. The church is people and always has been and always will be. The church is people and it is a movement that Jesus began. Jesus began a movement of people who would be the people of God. And whenever you come across that terminology and whenever you come across Jesus teachings about this, you see that Jesus teaches that the people of God and the kingdom of God are very similar, very much synonymous with one another. And wherever the people of God are, the kingdom of God is breaking in to the world. Did you know you're helping build a kingdom? You're part of a kingdom, an invading kingdom that's going to win. The kingdom of God that Jesus came to begin, that Jesus inaugurated with his life on earth. It's interesting. 
I wrestle sometimes even with the idea of building a new church building. Because one of my concerns is we will forget what the true church is. Sometimes I, I think maybe, maybe it's best that churches not have buildings. Because then we won't get that confused. We'll remember that we're the church, not the building. That we'll remember that we're the church, not the building. Do you understand that? And the reason I think this is so important for us to consider and for us to consider now in our history of a, as, as, as a church, as the people of God, is because before we embark on building a building, we need to know what to build. We need to know why we build, some, build something. We would need to know what it is we're building for. Because that will shape what we build. And I believe that the church is supposed to be all about the mission of God. And that God's mission is his preferred future for the world. And part of understanding is understanding what is God's preferred future for the world. And many people... Uh, have read a lot of dispensational theology. If you aren't aware of dispensational theology, if you've read the Left Behind series, you've read some dispensational theology. And I'm not a fan of dispensational theology myself. And uh, one of the things that I think dispensational theology has done for modern-day America is that a lot of people have become paranoid and scared and worried And we think everything's getting worse and worse and worse. And it's only liberals who think it's getting better and better and better. And the interesting thing is the early Christians didn't think either of those. They didn't think the world was getting worse and worse and worse. And they didn't think it was getting better and better and better. They thought Jesus has come. He's won. And he is in the process of redeeming creation. See, when I was growing up in church, I was always taught that the world and everything in it was going to burn someday. It's going to be destroyed, just like the flood. The only problem was we forgot that in the flood, God sent a rainbow and he said, I will never destroy the world again. And what God is seeking to do is redeem, to recreate, to restore the world and the people in the world. And his way of doing this is so unlike the human way of doing things. In fact, our text for today is a really irritating text. It's really a a, a bum you out kind of text on the surface of it. Jesus has been wandering around preaching and he's an itinerant preacher. And so he's preaching to different audience in different towns all the time. So my guess is he was teaching the same thing regularly. He had like a stump speech, you know, it'd be like politicians when you follow their political uh, wanderings during the political season. It's like, I already heard that. Yeah, but the people in Michigan hadn't heard that. And the people in Ohio hadn't heard that in person. And the people in Colorado hadn't heard that in person. And they just wandered around saying the same thing. And we got TV, so we know what they said. Jesus didn't have TV, radio, podcast, none of that existed. So we wandered around saying the same thing. And I think what he says in this passage, he said many, many different times. And it's in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And it's right after he feeds 5,000 men. 
And it's right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And right after Peter says, you're the Messiah, the king, the anointed one. Jesus predicts his death. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thing to do right after somebody proclaims you king? In fact, we often remember from movies or from growing up as kids when we would read a story about a king or a queen or whatever. We remember them being crowned, the coronation, and then everybody in the kingdom would say, long live the king. And so everybody understands how Jesus' reign is going to go down. Instead of the shouts of long live the king, Jesus follows it up really quickly with saying, yes, I'm Messiah, I'm going to die. And this is how I'm going to die. And to make sure that we understand what he's saying, he includes us. He includes those who would be followers of his. And he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This guy has no clue on how to build momentum for a movement, by the way. This is not a good way to get a lot of folks to follow you. We think, well, he said something about a cross and I've got a necklace that I wear. So he must have meant the necklace that's a cross. And I put that on and daily I put that on and I'm following him. But if you keep it in its historical context, you remember that a cross was an execution device. It was what the state used to kill criminals. Main example of them. Uh, nowadays, it'd probably be better to say, pick up your noose and follow me. Just carry that sucker around. Put that around your neck. And that's what Jesus is calling his followers to do. Pick up your noose, put it around your neck, and follow me. Huh? What is it Jesus is telling us? Where is he going? Jesus is heading to his death. And he knows it. He himself says that nobody takes away his life, but the son of man lays his life down. Jesus knows exactly where he's headed. He knows exactly how it's going to go down. He knows exactly that he's about to lay down his life. He's about to give his life up, that nobody's taking it from him, that none of this is happening by surprise. That it was like, oh my gosh, I should have stayed from, away from Jerusalem that week or things could have gone a lot better. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And he says, if you're going to be my disciple... Pick up your cross. Follow me. Now, when we hear the word disciple, we think of a student in our culture. We think of people who sit around and read their Bibles. We think of people who go to Bible studies. And every single time the church has something going on, they're there. And they're watching Bible stuff. And they're hanging out with Christians. And they're in a prayer group. And they're doing all these things. And it's so interesting because that's not at all what this word meant Back then, I mean, it has the idea of student, but it has more the idea of an apprentice. Have you ever seen the Donald Trump show, The Apprentice? It's not a whole lot of prayer going on on that show. 
There's not a lot of Bible study and there's not a whole lot of learning, but there's a lot of doing on that show. A lot of doing, a lot of planning events, a lot of doing tasks, a lot of raising money, a lot of doing. And it's so weird because churches do a lot of thinking and pondering and studying and meeting and not a lot of doing. I'm starting to think maybe churches, along with having a, a statement of faith, need to have a statement of doing as well. If you ask a lot of people in our culture today, what is it about a church? What does a church do? And they would say, it's a lot of people who sit around and have a lot of meetings and are against a lot of stuff. Well, what do they do? I really don't know. Never been. Are you interested in finding out? Absolutely not. Because I know that they're against stuff that I don't understand why they're against it. And they're really against stuff. And they're, they're somewhat judgmental and they're even sort of mean sometimes. And perhaps, perhaps we have lost what Jesus called us to. Where is Jesus leading us? If we are the people of God and we are the people of God and we are following Jesus into the world, where on earth is Jesus going? In this passage, Jesus is clearly going to his death. That's where Jesus is going. He invites you. To join him. Did you see that? Deny yourself. Pick up your noose. And follow me. You see the way of Jesus. Leads to humiliation. And death. And it always does. What the church forgets. Is that it takes a death. To bring about resurrection. And so much of the time, we want to live the victorious Christian life. We want to move forward in power and authority and bring it on. Jesus is my buddy and we're going to. It's so weird. Because so many times the kingdoms of this world usurp the kingdom of God, even in the church, even in our own lives. We get the two Mixed up so often. You see, the kingdom of the world is about power over. I like how Greg Boyd puts it. The kingdom of the world is about power over. It's the sword. It's, you're going to do what I tell you to do. We're going to make you do these things. Have you experienced God like that ever in your life? You're going to do what I tell you. I'm going to make you do these things. So weird. If anybody could do that (laughs) and be really compelling, it'd be God, wouldn't it? If anybody could wield the sword, it'd be God. But Jesus, when he shows up, he says himself, I did not come to judge and condemn the world. I came to save the world. I came to lay down my life as a ransom. I came so that I might set captives free. And you'd think that the way he would do that would be the power over way, the grab the sword and let's go kind of way. Instead, he uses a cross. And I like how Greg Boyd puts this. It's power under. It's power under. 
It's not power over. It's not power and position and authority and manipulation. And it's power under. It's love and gentleness and kindness. Patience and serving. You see, when Jesus calls you to follow him, he's calling you to a suicide mission. He's calling you to die to self. He's calling you to lay down your kingdom and to enter into his. Strange thing, there's, there's only room for one kingdom in this exchange, eventually. And you already know whose kingdom's going to win. And yet we fight it, don't we? We want our kingdom. We want it our way. It probably has something to do with commercials we watch or something. We're going to take a look at this for the next few weeks. What does it mean for a church to build the kingdom of God? And what would that look like in Ray, Colorado? And what would that look like for a church that's on the verge of building a new building? What would that look like? How would that shape and inform what we build? And let me give you one quick foreshadowing. We wouldn't build the building for us. We would not build it for us. And you wouldn't give to the building fund so that you can get what you want. See, that's power over. Jesus calls us to power under. We would build a building where it would advance God's mission in the world. And the mission of God would be to bless people. And the mission of God would be to love people and to be generous to people and to be caring and kind to people. And quite frankly, if we can't build something that looks like that, we shouldn't build it at all. We're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks. You see, a church is the people of God who follow Jesus to his death. And they come out the other side resurrected. I mean, the cool thing is it doesn't end with the resurrection or with the death of Jesus, right? Easter happened. How many of you, though, feel like today is not quite Easter feeling? And that's the crazy place the church finds itself. That's just the, this is the crazy place the people of God find themselves. It's between the now but the not yet. The kingdom of God has broken into the world. It is here. It is now. Jesus himself said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I'm the king. I'm here. It's near. You're near me. I'm king. Let's make this happen. And then he dies. And he resurrects. And then he floats off to heaven (laughs) and leaves us here. And that's the not yet part. And the New Testament is incredibly clear as to who is currently ruling and reigning this world. And it's not Jesus. It's Satan. Every single governmental structure that has ever been conceived by any human, Christian or not, is ruled by Satan. Every single structure in the world is ruled by Satan under his dominion, under his authority, except for one. That is the kingdom of God. That is the people of God. We call it the church. Sad thing is, we're all sinners. 
we have a tendency to forget that we're citizens of the king. We have a tendency to forget whose kingdom it is we should be building. And sometimes we get thinking, it's my kingdom. It's my kingdom. It's this kingdom. I like this kingdom. I like the kingdom of America. I like the kingdom of Steve. I like the kingdom of Ray. I'm thinking God's on my side and he wants to build all this stuff too. And then you read a verse like this. Did you catch what he said before? Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. <laughs> um, I like to go to buffets and eat. I was raised by an accountant. Do you know how an accountant understands a buffet? A buffet is something to win. It is a competition. It's you against the people who are charging you the buffet. So you do not leave a buffet hungry. You do not leave a buffet thinking anything other than push me out the door. How did I do this to myself again? If the buffet costs $10.95, you're going to eat $21 worth of food. And don't be filling up on pops. Those are free refills everywhere. I mean, go for milk or something expensive. And don't be putting a bunch of fluff on the plate. Salad, please. We're talking meat. See that meat buffet table? The one with the heat lamps. Heat lamp table, you put that on your plate. As much of it as possible. I have the body to show. I have buffeted my body, according to the scriptures. Paul, the apostle. I have my father to blame for this. When I was a kid, McDonald's, every once in a while, I would have 29-cent hamburger days. Anybody remember? Well, you guys didn't have McDonald's here, but um, we'd go after church. We'd get like 100 hamburgers. <laughs> we were beating the system. And no Big Macs on that day. 29-cent burgers all around. As many as you want. Come on, bring it on. And then Taco Bell. They came out with cheap food there. And so we went to Taco Bell. Any place we could win. Any place we could beat the man. I have no idea where I'm going with this. <laughs> but you are getting hungry. <laughs> the thought of denying myself at a buffet did not cross my mind. Still doesn't very often. But I can tell you this, when I have gone to the buffets in Ray and I've been on my fast during Advent or during Lent and I go and I just eat rabbit food, salad, potato, and I leave and I'm like, wow, I can walk out the door. That's a different experience. And I do feel a tad bit ripped off. I do. But I've also learned that in doing that, I've learned what deny myself looks like. It's a little stupid experiment. It's a, it's a little stupid thing. I understand that. Especially when Jesus is saying, pick up your noose and deny yourself. But right there at the buffet table, easy way to see what deny ourselves might look like. 
and maybe it has to do with our finances. Denying ourselves whatever it is we would like to purchase. However, we would like to put our money to work for us. Maybe it's in how we spend our time. What we do with our time and our, our, our treasure in those areas, denying ourselves. You see, if it's supposed to be us building God's kingdom, we, we are invited into the opportunity to build God's kingdom with him. We're invited to help this invading force come into Ray, Colorado, and to just turn upside down and redeem this area of God's creation and to bring about this change here, that we get to do this here and now, and we can leverage our time and our resources and our energy if we will just deny ourselves. Imagine people who got their heads around that. Imagine. My son begins driver's ed today. We've been putting that off. Unintentionally, he's mad at me because I didn't know the law. I figured driver's ed was for people who wanted a lower insurance rate, and I'm all for that. But now you have to take driver's ed. You can't get your permit until you've taken driver's ed. And then, according to the state of Colorado, you have to have your permit for a year. Sam won't be driving until he's 16 and a half. He's not happy about that. Don't talk to him about it. He may punch you in the eye. He loves you. Be careful. But I've been delaying it because it's going to cost me 100 bucks or so a month to add him to my insurance. I want to deny myself that. I want to deny him that. And it's so interesting because there's so many things that we do in our culture that we just think, ah, oh, it's normal. It's what everybody does. This is just normal. It's what you do. When, you, when, when this car dies or when it's got 80,000 miles on it, if you're my dad, you go out and you buy a new car. Lower miles. And you always got that car payment. It's just something you do. Something you keep doing. Keep going and doing this thing, that, and the other thing. And we just keep on keeping on because that's what you do. Jesus, deny yourself. Whose kingdom are you building? How are you building it? (laughs) I like to ask kids, how you doing? And they're fun to mess with, you know, children are. I like to ask, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. You happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Prove it. <laughs> what? P- prove it? You're smiling, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So maybe you're happy. Yeah, maybe so. Feel like singing? Uh, I don't know. You know that song, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands? Yeah. You said you're happy. Prove it. You know, I mean, they don't know what to do with that. Sometimes I feel with Christians who profess being a Christian, I feel like saying, prove it. Well, I can prove it. Here's my doctrinal statement. Really? You profess to believe that. Do you really believe it? Like when stuff happens in life, do you really believe it? You profess it. Do you believe it? There's a big difference there. Huge So one of the things that we have coming up in the life of this body of believers is the opportunity to believe who's to prove whose kingdom we're building. 
is really what we get to do. We get an opportunity to enter into this with Jesus. And by the way, giving to a building fund is maybe not even the best way to couch this idea. (laughs) Because I'm sure when Jesus said it, he didn't have building funds in mind. How do we deny ourselves? What ways? And if you and I are good Americans, my guess is we don't think like this ever. To deny ourselves comfort, to deny ourselves what our heart desires, to deny ourselves anything. Jesus invites you to enter into humility and death. That's where he's going. That's where he's gone. And he wants you to wrestle with, what does that look like as Steve Wanku, pastor in Ray, Colorado? What does that look like as a farmer in Ray? What does that look like as a rancher in Ray? What does that look like as a small business owner in Ray? Because he's not asking you to live his life, Jesus, because he's already done it and he did a really good job of it. He's asking you, if he were to live your life, what would it look like? How would he build the kingdom living your life? That's what following him looks like. And so I pray and hope we will keep these questions in front of us as a church, as the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. Next week, we're going to look at the next phrase in the world, follow Jesus into the world. And what does that mean? And what does it look like? And my guess is you're going to be surprised by the answer. I know I've been. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would um, speak to us as your kids. That you would help us to know what it looks like to be a part of your kingdom and to be building it. What it means to follow you and especially what it means to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow you. Lord, I think sometimes we think that the gospel message The Christian life is just the American dream with Jesus on the side. But here in this text, we see that sometimes being your disciple might be not having things. Giving up things for the sake of your kingdom and following you. So I pray, Father, that we would take these words seriously and we would wrestle with it. And Holy Spirit, you would hold us to wrestling with this for the next few days. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Peace that allows you to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow him. Amen.